Jesus' words from Matthew seven thirteen through 29. If you would, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew seven thirteen to 29. Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate. The gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's be seated as we pray. God, this word is a needed word for us. For some, it needs to correct uh, a way of thinking that's been wrong. For others, it's a much deeper heart level that needs changing. And for some, it'll be a word that strengthens and encourages. I don't know what your purposes are, all your purposes are for this passage in the hearts of each person here. But we do pray together that you would use this word as you intend. Even in my own life, in my own heart, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount for, this is the sixth week we've been in the Sermon on the Mount as we move through the book of Matthew. And this is the conclusion to this great, maybe one of the most famous sermons in the history of the world. Jesus' conclusion is direct, cutting, unvarnished, 
stern and bold. We who are used to the piddling evangelical theology of our day, a theology that promises much and demands little, might find Jesus' words in this passage a tad bit uncomfortable, maybe even offensive. But that's okay. Sometimes what we need is to be rattled just a little bit. He concludes his sermon with a series of four contrasts. Right? So first there's two gates. A narrow gate and a wide gate. And then there's two trees. A healthy tree and a diseased tree. And then there's two claims to God's lordship. A a genuine claim to lordship and a false claim to lordship. And then there's two houses, one built on the rock and one built on the sand. Each one of these four contrasts points to the same thing. There is a true way and a false way to follow Christ. There is a true way and a false way to follow Christ. Imagine, if you will, that there was some, uh, you had some ravishing disease in you. And there was a new experimental medicine that had been proven to deal with the disease and cure it. And so you went and, and you paid the money you needed to and you went and, and you met with the man who, who had come up with this medicine and developed it. And he said, now, there's a very specific way you need to take this medicine. And you need to take it exactly as instructed because if you don't, it'll do you no good. You can bet that you would pay close attention to what the man was saying. Because you wouldn't want to get this medicine and start taking it and realizing that even though you were taking the medicine that could save your life, you ended up dead. But look at what Jesus says here. Is the consequence... If you are on the false way of following Christ. So in verse 15. It talks about or sorry verse 13. It talks about. It leads to destruction. And then in verse 19. It says the tree will be cut down. And thrown into the fire. In verse 23. Jesus will say in the last day, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And then verse 27. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. That word great in Greek is the word megale. You know the word mega? Mega was the fall. The destruction is astounding. So the stakes are high with Jesus' teaching here. And and we can't just say, well, you know, we can't just dismiss this as saying, this is just talking about Christians versus non-Christians. Because if you look at the context, even even the Sermon on the Mount, look at how the Sermon on the Mount begins in chapter 5, verse 1. It says, 
Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Not just the twelve, but anybody who was a follower of him came up to him. So these words are not delivered to a group of mixed people who are following him and not following him. This is given to people who are followers of Christ. And then, if you look, it's in verse 15, when he's dealing with the false prophets, these diseased trees, he says, they are wolves, but they look like sheep. Why would they want them to be looking like sheep? It's because they're working amongst people who are sheep, who think of themselves as Christians. And then, if you look at the, the third contrast, these are people who claim, Lord, Lord, we've done these things in your name. They think of themselves as followers of Christ. And even in the last contrast, he says, you want to know the difference? It's those who have heard these words of mine. In other words, you here who have just heard this sermon, if you do it or if you don't do it. So the contrast here is not between Christians, loosely speaking, and non-Christians, those who wouldn't identify with Christ. This is a message given to people who invoke the name of Christ, who think of themselves as disciples. And it's saying there is a right way and a wrong way to follow. It's just eternity that hangs in the balance, right? That's all. Well, let's pay close attention then to what Jesus is saying, the instructions for the medicine. The first contrast is between two gates in verses 13 and 14. One of the gates is narrow. It's hard, but it leads to life. And yet few enter in it. The next gate is wide. Its way is easy. It leads to destruction, but there are many who go on that road. There's a brand of Christianity that says, I can have my nest egg, I can uh, be entertained with the same sensuality and violence that entertains the world, I can have my little vices over here in my closet, and yet I can go about whistling amazing grace, patting ourselves on the back that God loves us so much, and have a nice, happy way. That is not the brand of Christianity that Jesus is talking about or advocating in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, that's exactly what he's speaking against with the wide and easy road. You see, when you look at what the Sermon on the Mount says, what it calls us to, they're they're high standards. We need to have a heart that is poor in spirit, that mourns over sin, that hungers and thirsts for righteousness a sense of our own brokenness. We need to be people who obey God, not just kind of in this external, I'll follow the do's and don'ts sort of way, but an obedience that flows out of the heart. 
I need to be somebody who is doing the right thing, not to perform before man. But I'm doing the right thing because I'm seeking to please God. I need to be somebody who says, it's not about my name and my kingdom and my will. but It's about God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. I need to be somebody who truly trusts God as a loving Heavenly Father. And then that overflows in a way of gracious interaction with my fellow man. It's a hard path. But it's also a good path. Jesus also said elsewhere, Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yes, this narrow, hard road leads to life. And not just life eternal, though I think that is the main thing in view, but even a sense of the life in this age as God's Spirit fills you. There's a lot of things like this in life, right, that are hard but are good. So eating healthy, it's not very fun, it's hard, but you feel really good when you start doing that. Or exercise, right? Or quitting smoking. There's example after example. And so it is with Christ. And this road. It's a hard and narrow road. The path that Christ has laid out for us doesn't suit our fleshly, comfort-loving selves. But the hard way is also the light way. And the easy way. Now we need to be warned as we hear this. Often following the crowd. And even following the crowd of those who call themselves Christians. Can lead us right over a cliff to our destruction. Instead we need to heed what God has said. And follow his way. No matter how hard. Or how unpopular it is. The next contrast Jesus gives is a bit different than the other three. The other three are a contrast between his followers and two different examples of his followers. Here, the contrast is between two teachers that his followers might end up listening to. And saying, be careful who you listen to. He says, there are Healthy trees, there are teachers or prophets that would be good to listen to. And then there are diseased trees, which he also calls wolves in sheep's clothing. That famous phrase. And he says the way to be able to distinguish between these two kinds of teachers, two kinds of teachers that are here amongst the sheep that you'll be hearing, that you'll, that you'll be exposed to, the way to tell between these two kinds of teachers is by the fruit of their lives. You can judge them by their fruit. Now, God has graciously given us passage after passage that help us discern the fruit of a false prophet or a false teacher. Some of those, I'll I'll list four in case you wanted to write them down. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, Jude chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapters 1 and 6, 2 Timothy chapters 3 and 4. I encourage you to go read through those. It would be a healthy exercise. But we don't even have to go much further than the Sermon on the Mount 
to get a sense for some of the fruit we should be looking for. So Jesus says, right at the outset of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. Is this man meek, poor in spirit? Or is he an egomaniac? And how about what he does in his teaching? Does his teaching encourage in the fruit of his followers a sense of poverty of spirit and mourning over sin? Or is he always telling them how great they are, how good they are? Or Jesus in the sermon talks about how we need to be wary of practicing our righteousness to be seen by others. Is this man a man pleaser? Is he a showman? Or is there that private, humble, godly life that is seeking to please the Father and not please man? Or over and over in the sermon, or several times in the sermon at least, Jesus warns against serving material possessions, serving mammon. Does this man have a love for money? If you look about those other passages I was talking about, this becomes one of the most uh, clearest signs, warning signs of a teacher. If he has an inordinate, uh, if he's making an inordinate amount of money, from Christian ministry. There was a uh, Christian hip-hop artist who two years ago caused a stir when he wrote a song called False Teachers, and all the S's were dollar signs. And contained his song contained these words, Turn off TBN, that channel's overrated. That's a Christian supposedly Christian TV station in the States. Turn off TBN, that channel's overrated. The pastors speak bogus statements financially motivated. It's kind of like a pyramid scheme. Visualize heretics Christianizing the American dream. It's foul and deceitful. They're lying to people, teaching that camels squeeze through the eye of needle. Ungodly and wicked, ask yourself, how can they not be convicted treating Jesus like a lottery ticket. And you're thinking they're not the dangerous type because some of their statements are right? That only proves that Satan comes as an angel of light. This teaching can't be be believed without a cost. The lie is you can achieve a crown without a cross. Spot on. Just because they sell it in the Christian bookstore... Just because it's on Christian television or radio. Just because he calls himself a Christian pastor and pastors something called a Christian church. Doesn't mean we can trust it. We need to examine the fruit. Because when the blind lead the blind, Jesus said, they both fall into a pit. The third contrast there in verses 21 through 23 is, I think, the most startling. 
because it's the most explicit. It makes it explicit that not everyone who thinks of themselves as a follower of Christ will end up with Christ for eternity. In other words, Jesus is teaching that there can be for some a horrible judgment day surprise. That means there could be some here in this room because we're a group of people who by and large think of ourselves, our, uh, think of ourselves as followers of Christ. There could be some in this room who at this point are headed for a horrible Judgment Day surprise. And I might even say it's likely that there are some here because Jesus said the way is wide. Many enter it. That leads to destruction. And look who Jesus says don't qualify. People who invoke Jesus' name as Lord. People who are able to prophesy in Jesus' name or speak in tongues in Jesus' name or do many mighty works in Jesus' name. Look, if you're not sitting up a little straighter right now, if you're not paying just a little bit more attention, then you need to stop and listen. This is, this is heavy stuff. This is important. Jesus doesn't want us to be surprised on Judgment Day. That's why he gives us, graciously gives us teaching like this. To warn us ahead of time. And the distinction between those who do enter into the kingdom and those who don't is pretty straightforward. Those who do, there, right in verse 21, the one who does the will of my Father is in heaven and those who don't verse 23 depart from me skipping ahead you workers of lawlessness the difference is those who do God's will and those who are workers of lawlessness it's that simple so if you step on your Christian stage and do all sorts of great things for God Calling on the name of the Lord. And however public way you do that. And then you go back. Practicing your vices. Harboring your sin. You're no follower of Christ. Be warned. Now when he says, do the will of my father. Is he talking about perfection there? People who have never sinned. No. In the Sermon on the Mount, he's talked about needing the hunger and thirst for righteousness. I don't know about you, but uh, over the holidays, there were actually a couple of times when there was really, really good food available to me, and I didn't eat it. And the reason I didn't eat it is because I had no appetite for it because I was so stuffed from all the food I'd been eating. In fact, the idea of eating sounded repulsive to me because I was so full. I know you guys never eat to that point, but I do sometimes. I'm an American. Uh, so 
Um, you don't hunger and thirst for something if you already have attained it, if you already have it. Poor in spirit, mourning. Blessed are those who mourn over sin, right? When, when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, He teaches us to pray, Thy will be done. Doing the will of the Father, right? Thy will be done. And what else are we supposed to pray? Forgive us our debts. In his instructions to his disciples, he describes them when they're helping others deal with sin in their community. He says, you've got a log in your own eye that you're going to have to focus on. So we can't think that doing the will of God means that we have to be perfect. No. It's saying, live out what has been held out for you here in the Sermon on the Mount. That, that brokenness of spirit that's trusting God and allowing Him in your heart to change and transform you so you're one who does righteousness not as a man pleaser, not just to kind of follow the external to-do list, but as someone who's storing up treasure in heaven is seeking to please your Father who loves you. So, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom, but those who do the will of the Father. The last contrast is in verses 24 to 27. It's the most famous of the contrasts, probably because uh, it's, a, it's a favorite of children's stories, right? You know, um, there's, there's songs about it. I won't, I won't cause you pain by singing them. But we all know uh, the stories about building your house on the rock and building your house on the sand. But I think sometimes we just kind of gloss over it. So building your house on the rock means building your house on Jesus, and building your house on the sand is building your house not on Jesus. So this is just a nice little story about how it's important to be a Christian or to, uh, you know, the dangers of not being a Christian. But look at it a little closer. Who is the one who builds the house on the rock? Is it one who is building it on Jesus? It's not. Verse 24. Building your house on the rock is hearing these words of mine and doing them. And then, verse 26, building it on the sand, is those who hear these words of mine and do not do them. So, there's two groups of people. All of them have heard Jesus' words. Some of them do them, and some of them don't. The ones who do are like the ones who build the house on the rock. The ones who don't are like the ones who build the house on the sand. As God would say later in James 1, do not merely be hearers of the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Now, I want to make a comment, an extended comment, and it's not just on this fourth contrast. It's really on all four of them. There's some people who might take this passage, how Jesus ends this sermon, and argue that Jesus is advocating for something called works-based salvation. Now, works-based salvation is basically this. In order to get into heaven or paradise or whatever it is, the great place after death, I have to be good enough. 
I have to do enough good things. And if I fill up the tank with enough good things, I get whatever it is, nirvana, paradise, um, heaven. And really, that kind of thinking, works-based salvation, within, broadly speaking, Christendom, differentiates what's genuine Christianity from which is false. Because genuine Christianity says you cannot be good enough to get into heaven. That's why Jesus had to send his son to die for you. You can't store up enough good works. It has to be the grace of God, him paying the penalty for you. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, not by your works And even outside of Christianity, I'd say as a whole, especially if you look at major religions, all of them are works-based salvation in one form or another. And so they look here and they say, "That's, that's just what Jesus is doing. See, Jesus' religion is no different than the other religions that are out there. It's just works-based salvation. It's kind of like looking at a piece of pizza crust that maybe in a child's imagination, resembles a finger. And then saying, that's a finger right there, because it looks like one. Maybe if you squint hard enough, it looks like a finger, but it's only because it's been severed from the hole and cut off from it, and you're looking at it in isolation. If, if you read this as the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, there is no way you can take what Jesus is doing is advocating some sort of works-based righteousness. In fact, in part, part of the reason that Jesus is giving this sermon is as a corrective, as a warning against the kind of pharisaical system, which was a works-based salvation system, that I have to do enough good, check off my check marks, and then I can be happy with, or in a right place with God. He is correcting that kind of thinking. And that's why, as I've talked about, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about, he's talking about having a poverty of spirit where I realize I'm broken. And I can't do anything good on my own. And I'm mourning because of that. I, blessed are those who mourn. I'm mourning over the sin and brokenness in my world. And I'm, and I'm hungering for something different because I don't have it. I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It's why I have to pray, Father, forgive us our debts. And even the kind of righteousness he calls for isn't some sort of, it's, it's not focused on just the do's and don'ts. It's focused on a heart that understands our Father's care and provision for us and how He is anxious to give us good things when we ask Him for it. So we're supposed to keep asking and keep knocking and keep seeking, dependent on Him. If you read read the Sermon on the Mount and you think what Jesus is saying is, I have to be good enough to get into heaven, you've missed it entirely. You haven't been reading the same Sermon on the Mount that I have. What he's saying in the Sermon on the Mount is that we need to understand that we're broken sinners. And then in that brokenness, we need to turn to God and say, I don't love my sin, I love you. I want you to be my king. I want you to be my heavenly father. And as he does that, he comes and he does change our hearts so that we do start to desire different things instead of the praise of man, the praise of God.
instead of doing it just to do the righteous thing, to what is an evidence of God's kingdom at work in our own heart. So different than a works-based salvation. But that being said, Jesus is teaching that his people will live in a certain way. And we don't want to lose that. I just want to, I want to trace the theme a little bit. I'm going to start in the back of the Bible and just go back, back, start in the back and move toward the front, however you say that. So look back at Revelation chapter 5. It's on page 1031 if you're looking in, in your pew Bible. Romans chapter 5, there's this scene where Jesus is on, uh, well, there's this scroll, and if the scroll doesn't get opened, the devil wins, more or less. And nobody can open the scroll, because no one is victorious or powerful enough to do it, except then there is Jesus, this lamb that was slain, and he is able to open the scroll. And then it says why he was able to open the scroll in verses 9 and 10. And look at what it says. This is the essence of Christ's work, what he did that allowed him to be victorious. It says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We always focus on that he ransomed, right? He paid with his blood for the penalty of our sin, which is a right focus, it's there. But why was he doing that? He was doing that to establish a nation of priests. Now, priests have two functions, right? They're supposed to represent God to man, and they're supposed to represent man to God. As a representing of God to man, they're supposed to reflect a certain righteousness, a certain holiness, right? Great care is taken. We're to be a kingdom of people who are reflecting God to those around us. That's what Jesus did in saving us. He's making us into a, a new nation scattered from all the different scattered nations that were scattered at Babel. He's bringing them back together and saying, there's this new nation that will reign forever. And it's a kingdom of priests. So go back a few pages, just a couple pages, to 1 Peter chapter 2. This is on page 1015. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race. This is talking about this, it's talking about the church here. You are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions, possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So John said it. Peter says it. That 
what God's doing is making us into a nation of priests so that we can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. That's what God's doing. Go back a little bit more to Titus. On page 998, Titus chapter 2. Titus 2, picking up at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Well, John said it. Peter said it. And now Paul's saying it. God is doing something. Yes, he's redeeming us from lawlessness. Our sin has to be dealt with. He's paying that penalty. He is our savior. But there's a reason he's doing that. It's so that we can be a people for God's own possession who are zealous for good good works. So we who read our Bible should not be surprised then when Jesus at the beginning here is teaching the very same thing. For Jesus and for the rest of the Bible, if we are not living like citizens of heaven during our time on earth, then we should not have any expectation that we will live as citizens of heaven for eternity. Now again, this is not talking about perfection. I can't underscore that enough. This is not talking about works-based salvation. It's talking about God who's redeemed us because we're sinners. Doing that for a purpose as he changes us to be people who are zealous for the things of his kingdom. Who live out the kingdom ethic described in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not perfection, but distinction. And it's interesting to me, from my limited knowledge of church history, or my knowledge of church history is limited as it is, that when you look at those who guarded the teaching that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not by works, across cultures, across history, What you find is that those guardians, not all the time, but most of the time, are people who live out the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount. This heart-based, inside-out goodness. And when you start to move away from that, you got to be good enough. You got to be good enough. You get a good outward form of religion. But you don't get the heart issues that Jesus has been after in this sermon. And here's why. Because a works-based salvation, an idea, I got to be good enough 
to win God's favor has no power to change the heart. And so we're left scrambling, trying to be good enough. God, maybe you'll, maybe if I just do this, you'll forgive that bad thing I did. No heart change. But when we understand we are broken, helpless sinners who cannot do anything to save ourselves. And we depend on the free gift that is ours in Christ because of what he did on the cross and give ourselves to him and say, I repent and I trust you. I'm embracing you as my king. He changes our hearts. And our desires change. It doesn't mean we live perfectly, but there's a transformation so that we are becoming his people, which proclaim his excellencies to the world from a heart-level righteousness that the world can't imitate in all its different religions. It's not the kind of gospel that we often hear. But it's the gospel that Jesus taught. It's the gospel that Paul taught. Even in Romans, he has the, ends the Romans with the obedience of faith. It's the gospel Peter taught. It's the gospel John taught. It's the gospel throughout the scriptures. I don't want any of us be in for a judgment day surprise. We've heard God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this teaching. Thank you for a gospel that can change our very hearts. May we be a people who are distinct, who live out your kingdom ethic, not because we've tried so hard to be righteous but because we're poor in spirit, we're mourning over our sin, we're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and we've seen you change us because of who Christ is. If there are people, Lord, in in here this morning who have not experienced that transformation, I pray that your Holy Spirit would press these things hard upon their heart. Maybe they've long thought of themselves as Christians. Maybe they never have. But God, may your Spirit press these things upon their hearts, that you would draw them to yourself, that even in the coming weeks or months, we'd see them baptized, just as we saw the Rollinsons baptized this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.